Good morning, church. Um, I'm going to give you an abbreviated message this morning. Um, it'll be good. Because God's word is always good. It's always right. It's always true. This past fall, my uh, best friend from high school, Scott Weddle, and his wife, Darla, they flew out here. They came out here to see Lorinda and I, and we hadn't seen each other for a long time, but they didn't drive. They flew their airplane. You got that airplane, Phoebe? And Scott built that airplane. And what normally takes about 18 hours to drive here, he flew here in just a little over three hours in that airplane, he and his wife. And they came out and spent um, a weekend with us. And it happened to be on the fly-in weekend, of all things. They didn't plan it that way. That's just the way it worked out. And, and so Scott and Darla came out. And we were reminiscing a little bit about what we would call now being my age of the good old days. I'm not sure if they're good or... They're just old days. Um, and we were talking, to, I was reminding Scott of uh, an experience that we shared together. My dad was a pastor. We, live, we lived out in the country. He had a little country church out there. And um, Scott came over for dinner one night. And we were eating dinner. And my dad heard a noise. And he got up. And Scott and I went and watched television. And my dad came back into the room. And he said, Boys, there's a, there's a young man out there with his dirt bike ripping up the lawn in front of the church and in front of the gymnasium. So I'm going to go around this way, and um, I'm going to step out. And when he sees me, he's going to take his dirt bike and go the, the opposite way. But you guys are going to be standing down behind the gymnasium. And when that guy comes by on his dirt bike... I want him off his dirt bike. I don't care how you do it. Get him off his dirt bike. I wasn't the guy that was going to take him off the dirt bike. Scott was good at football, played uh, defensive end and uh, tight end in, in high school, and he knew how to hit guys. And um, sure enough, my dad walked down there and said something to the guy, and he took off on his dirt bike, spraying mud and grass everywhere. And he's coming down, and at the right moment, Scott just stepped out and clotheslined that kid right off that bike. And the bike went twirling off into the briar patch. And then we picked the young fella up, and we were standing there holding him when my dad walked up. My dad said, you know, young man, if Jesus were here, he would cast the devil out of you. But since he's not here, I'm just going to let these two boys beat the devil out of you. Now, you may be wondering, what does that have to do with Colossians? We're in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 today. Um, there are vandals out to vandalize your soul. They are, they are, there are thugs that just want to beat people up and do all kinds of wicked, evil, horrible things. And we know that they're all over the place. And they've, they've been showing their hand. And what they've, what they've done is they have downed an airline in Egypt, killing 224 passengers. They killed 14 people or, or 129 people in France 
a couple of weeks ago, and then just this week, 14 people were killed in Southern California. And that's what thugs do. They beat people up. They make a mess of their lives. They just do all kinds of wicked and evil things. And, and the craziest part is, is that there are people who may not do that physically to us, but they are willing and wanting to do that to us spiritually. They want to beat us up spiritually like thugs. They want to vandalize our lives. They want to, to make us feel as though, what's the use? Why do we even try? Where do we even go? And why would we even press on in any of this? But Paul gives us a place of comfort and hope when he, when he relates to us who Jesus is because Jesus is bigger than all of our problems. Amen? So let's just look at First Coloss- or Colossians 1, 15. And it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's... Um, He is the visible image of the invisible God. And it's really, we kind of sit around, we go like, oh yeah, okay, that's cool, yeah. um, Like I've never seen Jesus, but I've read about him in the New Testament. And what what Paul really wants us to understand is is that if, if a king were writing a letter or a decree to somebody, he would put some wax on that parchment paper and then he would take his ring and he would stamp it and what is stamped into that wax that hot wax is the exact image of what's on the ring of the king the exact image that's the picture that Paul wants us to get here about Jesus is that Jesus is the exact image of God himself it's not about anything else. It, what he's telling us here is, is that the God sent his son <clears throat> to be the visible image of the invisible God. We have all kinds of different verses throughout Scripture that help us to understand that. In John 1.18, Jesus was saying, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That, that is pointing us now to the, the fact that there is this Godhead. I'm using that word, Godhead, because it is a triune God, the Trinity. And in that Godhead, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I know there's a lot of people that try to say that they can really explain the Trinity quite nicely. But what we end up with is this idea in our own minds that there is, there is God the Father over here and God the Son over here and the Holy Spirit somewhere in between that doing His thing. And what the Bible really makes clear to us is that it is one God in essence, three persons in essence. One God. Not God the Father over here, and God the Son over here, and God the Holy Spirit. Three gods. That is not what the Bible teaches. And so for me to try and 
explain it to you, especially with uh, a bit of a headache this morning, would give me more of a headache and you, it, as my dad would say, when there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And I don't want to create a fog this morning. And so what we have is we have Jesus coming and, and he, he comes to earth. And this is just kind of crazy how we're walking through this passage right now and it's Christmas time. And we think about Christmas. And we think about Jesus coming as a baby to this earth for, for us, to help us. Emmanuel, God with us. We could go, I could go all over the place on talking about the birth thing in relation to Colossians this morning, but I don't want to do that. What I want us to understand is, is who Jesus really is. He is, in Hebrews 1, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He came to reveal to us who God is. We got the byproduct, too, that we got salvation. But he revealed, Jesus revealed to us who the Father is. You want to know what the character of God is? Look at the character of Jesus. You want to know what the attributes of God are? Look at the attributes of Jesus. You want to know anything about God? You look at Jesus. Because he is the exact imprint, impression, the, the exact person of who God is. Romans 1 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that in creation, all of creation, there is a uh, God calling out to us through what he has created. He has created all of this, all of the world, all of the universe, all of the rocks, the plants, the person that's sitting next to you, God created that person. And, and creation cries out to the glory of God. But creation doesn't show us exactly who God is. Only Jesus does that because he's the exact representation of God. Let's press on to verse 16 in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. There are three things I really want you to pick up on this right from the get-go. It says at the beginning of this verse, for by him all things were created. By him. Then at the end of it says, all things were created through him and for him. There's, a, there's this collectiveness about all of creation because we know that Jesus was at creation in, at the beginning. It, you go right to um, Genesis 1 and you find out that Jesus was intimately involved in creation. God the Father willed it. Jesus became the architect 
and designer of it, and the Holy Spirit implemented it. That's the way they work together. And so all these things that heaven and earth have their force, they were created through Jesus. I want you to understand that they were created through him because he, he's at the beginning, but he will also be at the end because he will bring all things together again at the end. At the end of all things, all of creation is pushing and making its way towards Jesus. There is a reason why Jesus is here. The reason why Jesus came to earth and why Jesus was intimately involved in creation because he created all things, therefore all things are subjective to him. And they cry out to him and they come to him. That's what, that's what they're all there for. John 1.3 says, All things are made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that God has made on this planet was made by Jesus. It was made by him. It was made through him, through his work. And it was made for him. So you are made for Jesus. Every person on the planet, of, planet Earth is made for Jesus. Even the people that killed people in France and blew up a jetliner or killed people in Southern California, they're all made to come to Jesus. The problem is they don't recognize Jesus as God. They don't recognize him as for who he really is. And so they slip away and do their own things. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. The Father and the Son are together. They're one. And they have brought this all together and they have created us in the image of God himself. You are created in the image of God. There is nothing about you that is not in the image of God except for your sinful nature. That was brought on by Adam. But, but you were created in the image of God for God's pleasure, for God's good work. But my question is, how do we live our lives? Because it also says in verse 16 that... Um, well, let me go on to 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, what happens is Jesus sustains, sustains all of the earth, all of the universe. Everything is sustained and held together by Jesus himself. There isn't anything that is held together. If Jesus was to remove his hand or his presence from planet earth and from the universe everything would go awry. It would implode. It would, uh, it would blow up. It would just it'd be gone. Because God, through Jesus, has this ability to hold all things together. The Malak... I'm not even going to try and say it. 
The structure of our bodies is held together because of Jesus. This, the, the reason why this nation we call United States is functioning as well as it is right now, and some of us think it's not functioning so well, it could be worse, is because Jesus is holding it all together. The reason that this earth doesn't fall apart and we don't freeze to death or we don't burn up in the sun's heat is because Jesus is holding it all together. He holds, he holds the whole solar system together so that it produces what He wants it to do. And it is by His power that it is held together. Your marriage, as fragile as it may be, is held together by Jesus. Your children, in their obedience, are held together by Jesus. So let's move on. Because it says He is the head, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. If Jesus holds all things together and he, he created the universe and He put all these things together, then He is definitely the creator and sustainer of the church. He's the head of this church, not me. He has called me to come and shepherd His sheep in this place, but I'm, I'm not the guy that runs this church. That's Jesus. And he holds the church together. I've heard a lot of people say over a lot of years that the church is on its death kick, that it's not going to last much longer, that it's not going to sustain itself, that it's finished. But as long as Jesus sustains and holds the church together, it will continue to thrive. It will continue to grow. It will continue to do what it's been called to do. And that is to, to share with other people who Jesus is in our lives. The great provider of grace and the sustainer of grace in our lives. And it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Um, I think I kind of skipped over a passage, and that's all right, because I, I might be delusional right now anyway. And you may not all be here. And I might be talking to an empty room. But it, it, back in 15, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that he is the firstborn human being. It means that he has first in rank preeminence. He, he is first in line and he is above all of, of matter. I can't say it any clearer than that. He, he is not confined or held into what we call time and place. Jesus is above it because he made it. The same way when in this verse, verse 18, it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first person resurrected from the dead. I don't, you know, some of you are thinking like, yeah, Jesus, go Jesus, you're the first one to come out of the grave alive. You're, you're the man. He wasn't the first one. There's a bunch of them in the Bible. He's the first one that stayed alive. That's for sure. That's true. But he also 
is the one that set the precedence because if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, resurrected, then the church wouldn't be what the church is meant to be. We wouldn't be doing what we are called to do. We'd be just pressing on and thinking about ourselves. I'm just pressing through a lot of this passage really quickly this morning. And I just want to hit 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What, what Paul is telling us here in this, these two verses is that all of Jesus is found in all of God. And there's this, this um, theological terminology called the hypostatic union of Christ. And, and I've said it here before. But that's where we have all of man and all of God together in one body called Jesus Christ. You can't take and make him a little bit less God. You can't make him a little bit less man and say that that's the way it functions because he is fully all man and all God. And if we, if we think of Jesus less than any of that, what we've done is we've made Jesus small. And I, I, I think that the problem that our churches have collectively is that we've made Jesus too small. Because when we look at Jesus and we look at our problems, we look at our problems and go, Jesus can't handle my problems because Jesus, well, he was born 2,000 years ago and my problems are technology. I have technological problems over here. Jesus can't handle that because he wasn't there then. We, we've got this whole idea that, that my problems are, are this grand thing and that Jesus is just this puny little itty-bitty guy over here who can do some really fun, neat things like turn water into wine. But he can't really handle the big issues of life. How does, how does he come along and help me when, when my husband's left me? How does Jesus going to help me when my children are rebelling against not just me but all of society and they're getting involved in drugs and all kinds of really rotten things and it's going to destroy their lives. How can Jesus help that out? Because I don't see him helping it out. It's too big for Jesus to do anything about. How can Jesus help us out in anything? Because he's so small. And our problems are so big that we just can't. We can't do it. We can't go to him with him because he won't do anything for us. But yet, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him. That he holds all things together. He's the head of the body of the church. And he's the firstborn among the dead. That, all, that he might be preeminent in all things. Do you know what preeminent means? It means supreme. Higher than anybody else. 
greater honor, greater majesty, greater power, greater everything greater. Jesus is preeminent, supreme over all things. There isn't a single thing that isn't subjected to his will. And so, you know, if we think about that, if we think about the whole fact that that everything has to give itself to Jesus, one day everything is going to come and proclaim Jesus as Lord. The Bible tells us that. But if everything is subjective to him, why doesn't Jesus do something about it? Why doesn't he annihilate ISIS? Why doesn't he take care of that Middle East crisis thing that's been going on for years and set it all right? Why doesn't he take care of my financial needs? Why doesn't he take care of my wife and show her that she needs to be a better wife? Why doesn't he help me with my kids to help them to grow up to be... Why, why, why? Why why does Jesus allow death and suffering and anxiety and worry? Why does Jesus allow just all the, the ugliness of life to continue to press on in our lives? Why? Well, if I could answer that question, I'd be a really smart guy. And I'm not. But I can tell you what the Bible tells us. Because there are things that when, when we look at it, we're trying to manipulate God into being the God we want him to be, not being the God who he is. I can't make God do something. Because he's God. I'm just a puny little worm. He could crush me if he wanted to. But we, we want to manipulate God into being somebody else than being God. Because if you don't do this for me, Jesus, then you're nothing. If you don't help me over here, God, then you don't have power to do anything. And we get this whole thing kind of messed up to where we think it's all about us telling God how to operate as God. And yet, if Jesus is preeminent in all things, he's the one that's telling us how it's going to happen. Amen? So, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. This is what God says to us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, it doesn't, our, our thoughts and our ways and our intentions and the things we want to have happen with God are only going to happen if we trust Him to be at that higher place. As soon as we try to elevate ourselves above God, above Jesus, we've dethroned Jesus and we've put our place, ourselves in His place and then we're going to run things, run amok in a big time way. By the way, the Bible makes it really clear that the things that you sow in life, and what I mean by sow, the things that you do, the way that you act, the, the way you behave, the way that you um, rub shoulders with people, is exactly 
the way that people are going to treat you. Kind of the golden rule thing. Only in Galatians it says um, that we shouldn't deceive ourselves to seem to think that that, um, we can do something that God doesn't know about. Because he says, whatever one sows, one will reap. So if you reap in righteousness and holiness, or you sow in righteousness and holiness, you'll reap in righteousness and holiness. If you sow in peace, you will reap in peace. If you sow in anger, you will reap in anger. If you sow in discord, you will reap discord. This is the law that God has laid out for us. And so whatever you are sowing right now is what you're going to be reaping. And it's not God's fault that you end up in the garbage pile. It's your fault because you're sowing there. And he's told you not to sow there. He's told you to sow and to reap in other ways. So I don't know how I got here. I have one piece of paper this morning. Usually I have seven. But there's, I'm going to bring us to Galatians five sixteen through 17. Because this is how we walk. This is how we sow. This is how we live. And Paul says to the Galatians church, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you ought to do. Let me just put it to you this way. God has clearly identified the way in which you should walk. Walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. God has identified clearly His Scripture that will help you to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling to be called the sons and daughters of the living God. God has identified clearly that if you sow in righteousness, you will reap in righteousness. And some of you are wondering... Why is it that my life, I seem to be, be going against God on every turn? Why is it? Why is it that it feels like my spiritual life is always a struggle and I don't seem to go or get anywhere with God? I don't seem to grow deeper. I don't seem to grow more in love. I don't seem to grow more holy as Christ has called me to be holy. Why is it that I have these continual problems all the time? It's because you're fighting against the Spirit of God. He's calling you to walk this way. Walk with me. Walk in righteousness and holiness. Walk with me. Do the things that I'm calling you to do, but we go the opposite way. And we sow discord and we sow sow hurt and, and anger in our homes. And we wonder why it's going all the wrong way. It's because our God is too small. We let the bullies of the spiritual world beat us up. And we we just get slammed down and we get back up and we don't think one thought about Jesus. We don't think that He should be first in our marriage, that He should be first in our church, that He should be first at my job, that he should be at first place in my, li- in my kid's life. He should be first place in my life. That he should be first place 
among everything I do. He should have first rule over what activities I'm going to engage in. He should have first place over my television and what I'm going to watch. And the list could go on. Are you tired and weary and worn out? Beating your head against the wall, just wondering why it just doesn't make sense. Why do I feel like I just can't get any traction? It's because you're going the wrong way. The Spirit of Jesus calls you to walk with Him. And when you walk in the Spirit, your life is going to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. God-filled, God-empowered. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you. I don't know what I just said, and so I'm trusting you to make sense of it all. I'm trusting you to take your word because you said that as I cast it out on the water, it will not, bring, it'll not come back void, but it will bring a harvest. And so I'm trusting you for that. I'm trusting you, God, to work in the hearts and the lives of your, your church here, your people. Grow them deep. Grow them in love. Grow them to be uh, your men and women right where you have them planted. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen.